0: Welcome to Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular Podcast. We'll help you discover just how flexible modular construction has become and how it is helping make life better for real people facing real space challenges. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We really appreciate you listening along to some quality built industry thought leadership. As you're listening along, make sure that you're going to our website, VanguardModular.com, for more information on some of the methodologies and services you're going to hear about today. And also, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations, as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be exploring the concept of digital twin modeling, a design strategy that's bridging the virtual and the physical to allow manufacturers, facility operators, and industrial professionals the ability to create more efficient and cost-effective designs. Imagine as you're testing a physical part or in the middle of manufacturing an important piece of hardware, you could virtually predict how each process in the manufacturing chain will impact pack that part, or imagine you could virtually run different scenarios with that machinery at work to make sure each design decision was truly up to par, and doing all of this simultaneously as the physical piece is being worked with. Digital twin modeling software enables that kind of virtual and physical coordination. And for many industries, this is becoming invaluable. As it grows in viability and quality and impacting various industrial sectors, we wanted to take the time to break down how digital twin modeling works, why it's useful across various sectors, including for modular construction some of the various domino effects on on-site projects and the various businesses involved, and more. So for Insights, we're joined today by Nathan Yorgi, President of North America Operations at Cyber Twin LLC, a spatial computing platform company. Nathan Yorgi, great to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's great to be with you. I'm doing well, and I'm, I'm excited for the conversation that we'll have here today.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a great one. Thanks again for joining us. I'm really looking forward to getting deep on the technical aspects of this, but then also the higher level use cases and how it is creating value for various different industries. Uh, I want to start by just referencing my uh, elevator pitch breakdown just now in the intro. How accurate was that breakdown of digital twin modeling? Do you feel like I missed anything essential or has that definition evolved at all?
1: No, Daniel, I think you you nailed you, you hit the nail on the head there almost to the point where we could end the conversation right here and folks would at least have the 50,000 foot view of what digital twin technology can do. So, all right, good stuff. (laughs) You clearly
0: did your homework. I love it. Well, good stuff. Other than what I broke down, if you had to add any more, uh, you know, sort of basic high level summaries of what digital twin modeling does, uh, what would you add and why?
1: Yeah, so so maybe the way to answer that question is to back us up a little bit because when we talk about digital twins the the term digital twin can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so I think it's important that we kind of define our terms. Maybe we even talk about where did the concept of a digital twin start from? And then from there I can I can more adequately add a few additional things that are that are really just layers on top of that digital twin model that you so eloquently described a few minutes ago. So do, should, do you mind if I start with that? Yes, please go ahead. Okay, so the, the technology really first got its name or was coined back in 2002. There there was, at that point, a professor at the University of Detroit, Michael Greaves, who coined the term. And from there, it kind of grew out of this need to describe a new way of thinking about coordinating product lifecycle management. And that's where it started, in the lifecycle management and being able to visualize that. Well, when when he first coined the term, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and even the ability to digitally model uh, physical attributes or physical pieces of the real world wasn't quite hadn't quite evolved to the point of where it was today so in 2002 it was very cutting-edge that what what he was talking about because we really didn't even have all of the supporting technology pieces, pieces to achieve it fast forward to today and we now have machine learning that is very robust we have artificial intelligence which sometimes it's almost scary how how accurately artificial intelligence can predict what's going to happen in the real world better than humans and then layer on top of that the coordinating technologies of virtual reality and augmented reality. And you now have, if you want to talk, if you want to look at it as an ecosphere, you now have an entire ecosphere of technology ready at your disposal to take the physical world, virtualize it, and then be able to, as you said, run scenarios, run models, or more importantly, just expose your digital, your, your, Internet or your connected sensor data on top of that virtual model for a host of use cases, and so the 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 additional things that I would add into your to what you said was that ability to now layer in rich contextual data, things like if you're in a factory, you can now layer in your your if you if you're on a supply chain line, all of the sensors that are on your production line, you can you can pull those into your model whether you want to simulate. production runs or whether you just want real time information if you've got you're you're managing modular buildings or you're managing any type of a building you can bring in any type of sensor around hvac around room occupancy if you've got cleaning sensors or other types of sensors in that space to manage the physical footprint of the building all of that can be brought into your model and especially in this time where We're thinking about returning to work and how do we bring people safely back into these buildings that we've invested hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars in all of this digital twin simulation as well as real-time tracking information is so invaluable to this day and age and specifically to this point in our human existence as we try to figure out how do we return from a pandemic where we were all cloistered in our homes and bring people back into these environments and keep them safe, but at the same time manage our own facilities and our own resources.
0: You brought this up already, and it was something I had planned to ask you about, but you intersected some of the uh, cutting-edge technology that digital twin modeling now takes advantage of to help create that immersive and responsive virtual environment, including machine learning and artificial intelligence. Those are definitely the big two, but I'm curious, uh, you know, as our ability to manage data, sift through that data, and, you know, create both uh, robust breakdowns as well as visual representations of that data have also improved. Are there any other edge technologies that you, you know, that you would define as really empowering digital twin modeling today? And if so, can you break down some of those timelines as to how they've grown over the years to enable digital twin to get to where it's even at today?
1: Sure. So, Two key ones are the virtual reality and the augmented reality. So, the uh, about five or six years ago was when the the real uh, seed investors came into this into the virtual reality and the augmented reality spaces. Players like Microsoft, then Facebook came along. Apple is is on their heels, and we expect some type of an Apple augmented reality device either later this year or early next year, and so. These, these companies, Oculus was another one that ended up being bought by Facebook and is now Facebook Oculus. And so all of these companies started the drive to bring these, at the time, were really considered gaming platforms, augmented reality not so much, but absolutely virtual reality. Was, was where it was for commercial or just consumer gaming. And as the, as the platforms improved, you could now fuse and integrate that technology with a digital model. So now I can take that digital model and I can put it into virtual reality or I can put it into augmented reality. On the augmented reality side, I have that ability to interact in real time because I can see the real world, but also interact with my virtual model for a host of simulation and real world uh, practical uses which we can talk about more on the virtual reality side now i have the ability to immerse myself in that technology and then things like hand tracking eye movement all of those things as virtual reality technology has improved we now can track all of that so if you think about training and you think about training on a digital model and now i have hand movement and eye tracking the power of that and the and the insights into how people do things and whether they're doing it right or wrong has grown exponentially in, say, five years even.
0: As digital twin was getting its footing as a concept, you said, you know, back in 2002 when it was first being ideated. Obviously, these technologies were not as robust, so the vision for it was maybe a little less defined where and when did digital twin modeling first start to find its footing at scale? You know, really starting to integrate into an industry and showcase, oh, wow, this is viable. And not only is it a great tool, but could be something that we build entire processes around. So track that timeline for us as well. Sure.
1: So uh, it, it's it's a little bit fuzzy and it kind of depends on who you talk to. But sure. Somewhere around 2005 to 2007 is when, in, in my view we started to see a real maturity of the technology to and and part of that was the cameras that you use so the the when it, when it was first coined and people started to say let's do physical models the the camera technology needed to be there to provide the rich cloud point imaging as well as you needed the back end cloud point data services to be able to aggregate all of that data compress it compile it and turn all of those polygrams that that are captured through the scan into physical representations of the physical world. And so it was in that probably 2005 to 2007 where there was a convergence of we now started to have robust cloud plat- platforms we had the first couple players matterport being one of them into the space creating cameras that could be used to create these high-fidelity scans. And that's where it it went from being conceptual to being practical. And then from there, it seems like every six months, there's an exponential leap in now with these cloud services, AWS and Azure, being able to render and, and computate hundreds of millions of polygrams and shapes into physical or into virtual images of physical things, which make the texture better, which to the human eye, make it look real. And so that just continues to grow right in line with the, with the camera technology that's allowing us to move probably about six years ago into 1080p to now 2k, 4k and 8k. And then even beyond 8k is, is where the camera technology is moving now
0: one more timeline to track uh, before we get more specific on the technology, but I want to intersect your background a little bit now. I know you have a wide variety of experience working with uh, testing and integrating innovative technologies. For example, you had 18 years at Pfizer doing that kind of work. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, as you've gone through the industry and you've grown more accustomed to working with Digital Twin. Uh, can you give us a summary of your experience working with this technology in the context of how you approached the intersection of edge technology and different industry operations?
1: Sure. So as, as you said, it my, my background is, is almost exclusively in life sciences and pharmaceuticals, and I've spent a large portion of that. Dealing with innovative technology. So my journey with digital twins started a lot later than 2002 you could say that I was a Luddite in that sense and that I was behind the curve but in 2017 was when I I was at a conference and I first heard about this how digital twins were really starting to to change the way that manufacturing companies could optimize production and optimize downtime. And so at the time there were a couple of rudimentary examples that folks had, and I thought, man, I think there's something to this. So the way that I I look at any type of innovative technology that I do, and honestly, now that I'm on the side of developing it, it's still kind of the value proposition for me is that the technology needs to be there to enable solving a problem. If we're creating technology just to create technology to look for a problem, it's probably not gonna be successful. And so when I looked at Digital Twins, In my pharmaceutical lens i thought well at the time we were we were struggling with getting solid production runs and and minimizing macro stops and micro stops on the production line and there was all kinds of two-dimensional modeling software that we were trying you'd, you'd employ people on the line to try to catch these things but there was no good way to really model throughput and then be able to to in real time simulate and show if we if we change throughput we're going to see x gain or x loss or or here's how we could reduce some of that downtime and so i started with an initial proof of concept with a digital twin and we created that that proof of concept mocked up a very small, simple production line. And then we ran simulations of what would this, what would various parameters, how would it change our outcomes positively or negatively? And the insights that came from that proof of concept were immediate. I mean, we had insights that we didn't even think we were going to have. And when you pull in, operators or you pull in engineers or you pull in the maintenance people and you have all of those different people who have siloed expertise and then they all add their input to a run and then you let it play out the multifaceted insights that you get are so valuable and that's what really then catapult catapulted in my my mind there is really something here. And how do I find that the companies that are doing this well and are doing it at scale? And from there, it's been a very fun journey to bring digital twins to Pfizer, to use them as simulation tools, to use them as real-time tools for our production and shift workers. And now as I'm on the other side of that building them, all of that insight helps inform the way that I develop our product at Cyber Twin Because I know that what we're developing actually meets a need. So so I get to say, we're enabling uh, someone or a company to do things better. We're not out there going, hey, we got this cool technology, do you have a problem it'll solve? And so that's what I think is one of the most rewarding things about this particular technology is that it's directly applicable to challenges that building building owners, building maintenance, or manufacturing individuals face.
0: All right, let's get more specific on actually getting the most out of digital twin modeling software. And I think the basic sort of uh, requirement there to really maximize the software is to take advantage of that virtual space. And what's great is that the virtual space can be just about anything. That's, that's what makes it uh, so flexible is that it can represent just about any workflow or environment dependent on your industry. But to get there, you have to build that space. So can you break down for us how those virtual spaces are built and what sort of factors um, businesses and professionals need to keep in mind as they try to build a virtual space that couples with a physical part or space as well?
1: Yeah. So, so Daniel, this is, probably the most exciting part of this this conversation so far to me because this is where I can be become a little bit of a tech head <laughs> hopefully I won't bore you all but we will we'll give you a little bit of information that's helpful so when we think about creating these models there there's two ways you can do it of course if you already have your physical building or your or a physical room or or whatever physical attribute exists you can do the scan but never fear because if you if you're say in the in the stage of early development where we're building a new building we're building a new warehouse we're building a new modular building and we want to be all we have is architectural drawings or maybe we even have like some some form of autocad even that can be turned into a visual representation so i'll kind of talk about the the, the physical one first and then I'll come back and talk about the AutoCAD conversion into uh, a, a digital twin because both are equally important. And I think for the the modular audience that we'll have for this call, probably both are of equal value at different parts of of a life cycle for for a product. So, let's think about first, we've got a physical building and we want to be able to virtually model it. So, the easiest thing to do is to have someone come in like myself with, with one of these high fidelity cameras and literally do a 360-degree scan of that that square feet of space. To give you an understanding, in about an hour, I can scan 200,000 square feet of space. So size doesn't necessarily become a challenge too much. Now, if if you're talking hundreds of thousands of space, maybe it takes eight hours to scan. But the good thing is... The, the batteries on these cameras last eight to nine hours. So I've never had a job where I couldn't finish the scan uh, before I ran out of uh, of a singular battery. But that's that's basically you know as much as as for my own ability to sell my own product, you want to make it be super uh, you know overly complicated. It really isn't. You're, you're going in and you're doing a scan. and then what happens on the back end is that it renders all of those individual images of the scans. And then there is a software that my company owns where we take all of those images and we render them together into that digital model. And that's really where it, it turns from the straightforward, I took pictures and I have the pictures. And now with the cloud point images and the three-dimensional data that come from those images, we stitch it together and create that model. And so without getting any more technical on how we take those various pictures together and, and knit them I'll save that for another more detailed one. Let's flip over now to what if I've got an AutoCAD. So say I've got a blueprint or say even better, I've got an AutoCAD rendering of that blueprint. You can take that AutoCAD and using the same type of builder process, you render that in and whether it's SolidWorks or whether it's Navisworks or any of the different uh formats that that usually AutoCAD comes in you can take that and and render that into a three dimensional view of your two dimensional blueprints and then if inside say SolidWorks you have already created additional pieces of like if we're talking about an office building you've got chairs and you've modeled artwork or you've modeled tables whatever it is those can be imported into the 3D model as well into the into the digital twin model as well So now in both examples, we have our model and from here is where the fun starts because now you can use the soft, that digital twin software to, to model, to run simulations, to overlay your IAOT data so that you can get real world information on top of the physical environment, or you can use it for tours. So Daniel, you ask like what type of industries should be thinking about this type of technology? Well, absolutely. The industry that that we're talking to today, uh, the the ability to provide your clients with models of the buildings, the modular buildings that you're building for them, so that you can use it as a selling feature, or so that you can use it as an ability to check on on flow or design. Uh, of course, manufacturing can leverage this technology, and so whether you're, you're using it to determine correct placement of new manufacturing lines and new pieces of equipment inside your building, or you just want to be able to visualize a building that you plan to build and all of the inner workings of the electrical and the HVAC and the water lines and all the rest of the things that go into these highly complex buildings, now you have the ability to to, with the software, kind of reveal layers. So if I want to look at what's behind the walls, now I can look at the electrical. If I want to look at what's in the ceiling in the HVAC and how that's going to interact with maybe vents if you're doing chemical work or, you know, other hoods or things like that, now you have the ability to look at that in a way you can never render in two dimensional views. And then the other area where we're seeing quite an uptick, and honestly, it's due to restricting people's ability to go on vacation is in the, the world of tourism. So we, we have seen our company alone has seen an uptick in places, museums, or other, other types of tourist attractions that want to create virtual, uh, have a scan their entire environment and then allow for virtual tours. So as an example, our company is, is, has worked with quite a few museums in Ireland and developed virtual tours of art galleries or virtual tours of breweries. Now, unfortunately on the brewery tour, you you don't get to taste virtual beer. That's a, that's a, a sad part, but you at least get to see and tour either with a narrated tour guide or without, and you can you can do free roam, what, what's in that space. And so the, the, this digital twinning capability has many different extensions that it can be used for. And it really is up to the creativity of the designer or creativity of, of the client to say how far they want to take
0: the technology and and the use of it. Are there any industries that are really seeing the value of this at an industrial scale? I know you gave a few examples already, but uh, for example, Digital Twin really got its footing in industries like the real estate industry, where you could provide virtual tours, for example, and use that virtual space to represent a physical space well, Uh, but now that Digital Twin is being used uh, more simultaneously with that physical space and in industrial settings, has the software stepped up at all or been able to scale in surprising ways as of late?
1: That's a great question. And there's two answers that I'll give. One is in the aerospace industry. So... Uh, when aerospace companies are designing uh, very complex and very costly engines for planes, they need a, an, a they need a way to model uh, what what's happening inside that engine, and also to test out different parameters without the cost of building it and then breaking it in the process of learning how to do it better. And so, this digital twin software and capabilities is one that has been used repeatedly in both the uh, kind of commercial Commercial airlines, Boeing and Lockheed, and then also in the military setting because they have the same needs, and in many cases they leverage the same companies. So, a quick Google search of digital twins of, say, a GE engine, and you'll find videos upon videos of air movement through the intake and out the back, and how the how the internal fans move, and so. This is a great example of how it, how it's revolutionized an industry's ability to bring products to market quicker and also more safely, because everything the airline does is modeled before they ever once build the first prototype. And then of course those prototypes go through many hours of advanced testing, but the modeling has saved them hundreds of millions of dollars in doing the modeling first. And then in many cases, simultaneously while they're building the the physical engines continuing to model what they're building to make sure that they're building it correctly so that that's one example from the aerospace industry another example is in the manufacturing uh, space and what i had said earlier is that many companies are using digital models as they as they simulate new production uh, capabilities that they're building so that they run that they, they build their virtual production line, they move the pieces around, and then they run simulations to find what is the most optimal sequence of pieces of machinery, and then what is the flow rate, and how much output can I achieve in the quickest amount of time. And in many cases, they'll, they'll run hundreds of runs before they ever actually put brick and mortar and start putting the pieces of the, of the physical production line together. And then, of course, Where where it comes real time is once that production line is built, all of the sensors on that production line are now ported in. You have your physical, you have your digital representation of your physical model with real time sensors over top of it. And so now you have the ability in real time remotely to manage all of those pieces of machinery as they're spitting out data and helping you. Do predictive analytics, and we haven't talked too much about the predictive analytics uh, yet. Would you like me to jump into that a little bit now and explain how how this these these virtual models allow
0: you to do predictive analytics? Yes, please. Yeah, go ahead and connect those dots for us. Uh, and if you could um, also intersect the data management side of this, because as much as the use cases are great, I also want to make sure our audience understands how they can get to the point where they can maximize those use cases right like actually funneling the data and processing it and strategizing around it in a way that is scalable
1: sure so 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 first let's start with the data management piece and and so when when you work m- many many of my peers who are in the the digital twin space you you want to build your digital twin platform so that it is it is rather technology agnostic meaning there are plenty of uh, data management tools. Like if you're on the, the kind of the industrial side of things, maybe you're using PTC ThingWorks to manage your, or, or Siemens, or I could go on and, and na- name drop lots of companies who have these sensor platforms. And so when you're thinking about doing this at scale and you really want the data insights, the first thing to think about is what platform do I want to use to in, to collect and then ingest my sensor data? So assuming that you've made that decision, the next thing to say is, well, how am I going to get all of that valuable sensor information into my model? And that's where a company like ours can come in and say, well, we have APKs that will link whatever sensor information you have into the platform. So then assuming that you have the sensor information into the platform, this is where the predictive analytics come into play and where... That where data management really shows its value. So, with the speed of these cloud platforms like Microsoft Azure or um, Amazon Web Services, they have machine learning capabilities that exi- that natively exist inside these cloud services. And the more data points that are ingested, the more information this machine learning can compute and spit out. You know, for the last three weeks, there's been a slight change in the harmonization of this one piece of equipment you know you told me when you set up your parameters that it should the you know that, that the it shouldn't vibrate more than 100 milliseconds and it's i've noticed that there's been six times where it's vibrated over that well a human's probably never going to pick that up cuz those are micro data points but machine learning picks it up and then either through the model or through the dashboard the back end dashboard that manages this data you, you now have those insights driven to the individuals. So now the individual can say, oh, look, it's telling me that there's been this change in, in frequency. Well, now the human can make a decision. Do I want to worry about that? Is that just an outlier? And so if it becomes an outlier, the human now has the ability to correct the machine and say, this isn't a worry. Well, next time, the machine will learn from that. And so the next time, it will not give that same advice. But if the human says, oh, this is a good catch, I should investigate further, now it becomes a check in the column of, this was a good insight. And now machine learning can go, next time, I will repeat that. And the more data it gets, the more ability it gets to refine the insights that it provides to the human. So hopefully, not getting, I could go a lot more technical, but at kind of layman's terms, Hopefully that gives some answers the question and gives some good insight there.
0: Absolutely. And we'll get into some strategies for how businesses can really maximize digital twin modeling, uh, more specifically around how to integrate them and what are some of the processes for getting started with that software. Before we do that, I want to highlight one more industry, and that would be the modular construction space. We're obviously on built modular today. So I'm curious, has digital twin modeling been used at all in modular construction and to what effect? So... uh, it's a
1: great question, and, and it's one that I honestly had to do a bit of research before coming on to the podcast because I just from my own background and what, how I've used digital twins, I wasn't 100% sure, but through the research that I've done, it does look like there is quite a lot of digital modeling happening in the modular building space and again it's for it's for many of the use cases that we've already talked through in our time today you know it's the it's the ability to model it's the ability to show what what the space is going to look like so that the customer can see what they're getting before they get it. And so it, it's it's all of those practical kind of uses of bringing something to life and then once you have it m- maintaining it and managing you know its use.
0: And I feel like specifically with modular construction, there's a useful intersection between a virtual space and a physical space. Uh, You know, like any construction project, you don't really get to see what that space is going to look like until it's done and finished. With modular spaces, that that gap is bridged a little bit more because of the fact that sometimes modular spaces are shipped to their location already built. Or, you know, they're uh, structured into key pieces like a puzzle, and you're not starting literally from scratch, building the lumber and the pipes and everything. You're more just connecting sections of a building. Uh, However, that doesn't mean that there are still ways that, uh, you know, that physical space could go wrong, or there could be misconceptions around how it would translate onto the site that maybe you couldn't predict unless you had that virtual space to help digitally twin model it. So... Can you give us that intersection? Have there been any, uh, you know, unique use cases you can highlight that showcase just how useful digital twin is in the modular construction space?
1: So that's that's a great question, and I have two kind of examples that I think will bring it to light and illustrate the value. So so that they both. Both of them come from my time at Pfizer. Uh, One of our production facilities was looking to do a rather sizable enhancement to our facility, but because we were going to run production at the same time we were enhancing the building, it required us to be very creative in the way that we added kind of module and in a way do modular construction. And so I I remember the, the, the group asked me to bring in our digital twin software. And we, we set it up and then we, we loaded the current AutoCAD drawings that they had. And the first insight within the first 10 minutes, uh, I remember the lead engineer started to just walk through the virtual space and he came to a conference room and right across the center of the conference room was probably a six inch diameter, uh, uh, it was a gas pipe that was just running through the wall, running directly under the large table in the room, out the other side and into the hallway, and then exited the building. And at first he said, oh, this must be a mistake. The model, you must not have gotten the model right. So we actually went back to the AutoCAD. We, we did a comparison. And yes, this was exactly where this pipe was drawn on the engineering drawing. And so immediately we had a visual representation in 3D where we could say this would have if we had if we had had the modular building shipped and we tried to install them, it would have been a complete rework. I'm not even sure what the expense of the rework would have been, but it wouldn't have been cheap. And so that ability to to virtualize and then get inside of that space and interrogate it before you ever brought physical bricks and mortar or physical modular pieces together. Was was immense. Another example, in that same construction, there were, of course, as you can imagine, there are all kinds of safety features added to these buildings. And so, there was one area where, where up the side of one of these modular pieces, there was a railing, and by local building code, the railing had to be. Uh, I think it was six feet or I don't remember the exact amount. Don't hold me to that. Well, it was four or six feet. But the challenge was on the other side of the railing there was some work that needed to be done. And so there was a need for individuals to be able to reach over the railing, but do it in a safe manner. And the the group had no way to vir- to virtualize that. And so they had spent weeks discussing uh, with, with with vehemency whether it should be four feet or six feet and did it give enough room and was that going to meet the health and safety standards of the of the municipality and of the plant we put them in we put three people into this digital model in VR headsets now they could physically lean over a virtual railing and reach down on the other side and they all realized six feet's not going to work but four feet will. And then they said, what if we raise it to five feet? And five feet was the perfect height for them to be able to lean over, do the work they needed to do, but also not allow them to fall over the railing and cause safety concerns. And so again, great example of virtualizing that environment before it even exists and the value that that can bring.
0: All right, we're getting to the back half of our conversation here. So I want to wrap up by asking a set of questions that will hopefully give our audience some tips and tricks on how to get digital twin software integrated into their industries, some of the potential roadblocks they need to be aware of, and how the software is sort of set to evolve, or uh, some wider maybe structural inhibitors that we need to keep in mind as we bring this into the field. So... How long do digital twin modeling processes actually take in practice when it's time to create that virtual space and then have it sync with a physical space and get data back that you can strategize around and use proactively? uh, How long does that process take? Does it vary by industry and does that influence how the technology is used?
1: So it's rather quick. Um, The the, the scan itself, depending on the complexity of the scan, can take anywhere from a couple of hours to maybe a couple of days, depending on how how much or how large of the building. But once the scan is complete, uh, within roughly a week, uh, and and sometimes shorter than that, depending on the the need of the client, you can have a a virtual model built for you. So if if you're talking about, say, 20,000 square feet, you, you can have that that model turned around and ready for use in less than three days, and then from there, it's it is the whatever whatever additional levels of data that they want to expose on top, uh, that those then kind of drive the additions. Like if you want to uh, add IoT data on top of that, if if all that's needed is to link from the customer's proprietary uh, IoT system they're using. And linking that up, that can be done within hours or days, depending on the complexity and what kinds of dashboards they want. But the models themselves and the rendering of the model, if we just use that as kind of our entry point into this digital twin space, can be done in in, in within calendar days and not even weeks.
0: With that in mind, as businesses are looking to adopt digital twin modeling into their processes, where do they begin with integrating it? Are there other prerequisites that need to be met before Digital Twin is most useful, such as expanding your digital network capacity, integrating other technologies, uh, getting a grasp of your data management? Kind of wh- where does it fall? So,
1: as you can imagine, companies probably fall on that spectrum all over the place. You know, we work with some companies that have very advanced data strategies, have very advanced networking capabilities. And so then it really is a plug and play where they, you know, they, they have all of the pr- prerequisite systems built and and then we can come in, give them the digital model, and then they can start uh, gaining insights. But I, what I would say is don't let your your company's either a lack of network strategy, uh, data strategy, or even sensor strategy be a blocker because one of the things that that, that can be done is that very quickly a company like Cybertwin can come in and consult with you on the kind of those gaps that are needed. And the nice thing is that the model has no prerequisite of any of these other things. The model can be scanned and companies can start leveraging the model while if they need to evolve their data strategy or their sensor strategy or even their network strategy, those things can happen in parallel. So I always advise, don't let any of those lack of prerequisites stop you from saying, Let's, let's start extracting value from the model because just having the physical model and being able to use it for planning purposes alone, if you're not connecting any data to it, is extremely valuable. Now, the other way that I would answer that question is when companies come to, to CyberTwin and say, you know, we think we have a need. Usually, I don't lead with a technology question of, okay, how do you want to leverage the model? Where I like to start, and this is, this is my my kind of advice for people who are interested in this is think about what is your end goal is your end goal that you want to create a connected worker strategy and so you want this visualization to enable your workers to be more productive more compliant produce less errors or is your or or is your 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 goal of a digital twin to be able to ensure 100% compliance as you build new buildings Or maybe you're in the construction space like the the modular space and you just want to be able to ensure that every building you built is directly meeting the client's needs. Really understanding what your, your, your end state is allows us then to back into what parts of that technology stack are going to deliver the value. Maybe your end goal is I want to be able to provide superior training. And that's something we haven't even touched on too much that digital twins provide, is that ability to train in a way that you can't train by handing someone a work instruction or, or a standard operating procedure and say, read this and then go into a space and be competent at it. Our world has, has grown too complex for that. And so the training needs of today require individuals to be able to touch and feel and interact with very complex processes. And so maybe your needs are, I want to be able to create a digital twin so I can train my employees on how to manufacture the physical thing or how to manufacture, you know, widgets or whatever it is that your business creates. And so the first step is to really sit back and take stock of what, what, is, our, what is our end goal here, whether it's a human capital goal or whether it's a, an operational goal or a manufacturing goal because that then informs the conversation and honestly if you ask cyber twin to get involved those will be the questions that i ask you first sometimes to the annoyance of the customer but in the end it allows cyber twin to provide an end product that is going to meet the full life cycle of your needs and not just giving you a digital model that you say well this was great but what does it give me and that's where we don't want you to be with this really nice sexy digital model that you're not sure what you're going to do with Because then we failed and, you know, uh, uh, honestly, the customer has failed as well because they they, they don't have execution of this digital asset.
0: On the flip side of that is making sure that this technology can be integrated with the workforce as well and making sure that all the people that – have uh, hands-on use of the tech either in the design stage, the use stage, or the you know post stage, right? The analysis and strategy stage can actually do something with it and understand its use cases. So, do you have any tips or strategies on employee education and making sure that? as this is integrated the right people are brought to the table early and uh, you know given that that kind of boilerplate rundown for why this is useful and how to integrate it
1: yeah so you you hit the nail on the head there and that the the human capital management side of any technology is the largest part of your adoption curve you know you can create amazing technology but if you're whether you're creating it for your, your client or whether you're, you're creating it for your own employees, that value proposition of what's in it for me has to be there. And so again, um, my advice on that front is first, under, f- first create that value proposition for your company. Why should somebody care about what we're doing? And so in some of the use cases that we've talked about over the last 45 minutes. So if, if your end goal is to allow your employees to be uh, more compliant with their work or produce less errors or to get right first time production, whatever it is, outlining that and then through what, what we do from a technology standpoint is we'll never come in and f- do a full scale rollout from the start. The best way to gain adoption is to come in and do a very small-scale proof of concept, or where, we'll, where we'll create a, a segment of an entire digital twin, but we'll create a segment that has some type of an ROI that can be measured, and then bringing the impacted customer group, whatever that group is, and having them interact with the model, and in in a very non-confrontational and non-kind uh, of aggressive way, say, check it out run it do a simulation in it and in, in my own work uh in my previous life at, at the pharmaceutical company and also in in my world in in cyber twin i see this being the, the best way to do it because what's nice about this is that it's a very visual technology of course it's a digital twin so people see it they can understand it they can put their arms around it and then it's a matter of saying don't believe me you use it you try it and I've honestly never had a person come back saying, "Yeah, I've tried it, and there's no value here." They may come back and ask questions, but every person, once they can touch, feel, and interact with it, either in on a computer screen, in an AR headset, or a VR headset, says, "Yeah, there's something here. Let's explore it more." And so I, I think that's the way to gain adoption: is to not force it, but to see it as an enabler. And if you have a clear value proposition, then the the kind of the stakeholders that that I say you need to bring to the table are having somebody from employee health and safety is a must. Having some if you're an, this is of course kind of larger operations where you've got all of these segmented groups. So say h someone from HR because of course you're going to have some some challenges there. So you want to have those people brought on board from the start. Bringing your uh, kind of your engineers and your maintenance people on board as well. And so sitting them all down and. Again, from a value proposition standpoint, helping each of these groups understand the what's in it for me. And I, and I don't have time to go through each one of those groups I just mentioned and tell you the what's in it. But I think, you know, uh, we're, we're all smart people here. So you can probably extrapolate kind of the what's in it for each one of those groups. And shaping that value proposition for them is going to make uh, kind of the, the introduction and then adoption of this type of a tool just soar.
0: Let's get an even wider view here. What are some industry factors, including potential geopolitical factors, economic drivers, tech advancements that you think are going to continue to shape how digital twin modeling is used in the future? And is there anything that we should be keeping in mind, especially for folks that are just getting started with digital twin?
1: So as you can imagine, let's let's use COVID as our example. The ability to do tracking and tracing of people and interactions and connections once someone is shown to have uh, COVID is, is of, of utmost importance. And so that data can come from a variety of sources and it can come from the you know tracking the individual and where their phone is with, with them as they move through their day. And so the, these digital twin models provide the ability to, if you can put a sensor on it, You can track it and you can expose it in a model well one of the things that that i think we need to think about because there's a lot of value but there's also a privacy concern that is legitimate is once we start tracking and say you're in a large facility and you want to start tracking the movement of tanks or physical objects that's wonderful but what if you want to be able to know where individuals are for safety purposes for emergency purposes or even for um either allowing them or not allowing them into certain areas without appropriate training. Again, digital twin models give you the ability with, with sensor data behind the scenes to expose all of that, but what needs to be wrestled with, and this many times is done at a company level. Sometimes it's done at a geopolitical level when say like the EU will say, you know, certain data, certain private data can be exposed and then other bits cannot. That creates Um, Whether it's at a company level or more of a geopolitical level, conversations that need to occur before you would implement some of the technology in some of the use cases. Of course, if it's just physical assets, there's no privacy issues. But where the technology is evolving very quickly is for return to work and safety issues of being able to say, um, you know, we we have a a four-story office building. And and people are going to return and, and need to use this space. And how do we ensure cleanliness? How do we ensure as occupancy changes, we'll clean dynamically to make sure that we're staying ahead of you know the the, the safety curve there? Well, to do some of that, you you need to start thinking creatively about what am I tracking. I, I, I may not want to track people, but I may want to track the laptop they're using. Or in the case of cleaning, I may want to uh, put a sensor on that cleaning cart so that I know the cleaning individual has cleaned a room because the cleaning cart went in and out of the room and, and did what it did. So it's, it's those kind of things where the, the ability to track is going to grow. The ability to get very minute levels of data on wh- where things have moved and then take action based off of it is only going to be more readily at our fingertips.
0: But yet at the same time, we need to balance that with the privacy concern. And finally, as we look ahead at which industries may be able to maximize digital twin software, are there any that haven't really seen the use or the value of it that you think moving forward will or are on track to adopt it? Maybe, you know, if we continue to intersect COVID to the conversation here in the healthcare space specifically,
1: you can almost paint a picture where every industry uh, that 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 has a need for it isn't fully leveraging it yet. And and some of it is just due to the nascent nature of the technology as, as it evolves, as it grows, as people have kind of understand what it is, uh, the the adoption rate will pick up. But I, I think to what, what I think you're alluding to there is I, I expect with uh, the return to work as a result of COVID, there will be a large demand over the next, say, six to 12 months where digital twins have a much larger space in the conversation around managing return to work, managing safety, and managing movement of people and occupancy. And I think it actually has a knock-on effect post-COVID, because while I'd love to say this will be the last pandemic the world will face, unfortunately, it won't be. And so there will always be this need to have systems at the ready to be able to manage this. And I've had some conversations recently with large real estate firms who manage buildings who are saying, our customers are coming to us saying, what is the return-to-work strategy? and we don't have a strategy other than you know ha- using physical people and monitoring what how do we use digital technology and so i suspect if there's one industry where there's some real need a need driver for growth it may be that industry as real estate companies want to That They need to bring people back into the spaces that they're leasing, but they need solutions, viable solutions, to ensure to these companies that lease space from them that we'll, we'll keep you safe and here's how we're going to do it.
0: And on that note, Nathan, I think that does it for our conversation today. We've broken down the timeline, the technologies, the use cases in the future of digital twin modeling. I think this is going to be the holy grail now moving forward for anyone that's looking forward to integrating this technology, has questions about how to put it to use, uh, or is unsure if their industry even has a use for it in the first place. So thank you again to our guest, Nathan Yorgi, President of North America Operations at Cyber Twin LLC, for all of your insights today. If folks want to find out more about Cyber Twin, some of your technologies, and how you are putting Digital Twin to use, how can they get in touch? How can they learn more? so you, you,
1: can, you can reach me at the following email address, n-y-o-r-g-e-y at cybertwin.com, cybertwin, all one word. You can also reach out uh, to us at www.cybertwin.com, and that's our, our website. And from there, you'll find a host of resources around Cyber Twins. Uh, we have some links to our partner companies there and uh, you can reach out to us. There's a chat function there where you can ask any questions and we'll get back to you in a very timely timeframe.
0: I love it. Nathan Yorgi, thanks again for your time. It's really been a pleasure today. Thank you very much, Dan. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're heading to our website, VanguardModular.com for more podcasts, videos, and articles covering a swath of thought leadership in our industry and beyond. And make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.